0: because people are complex, that means the solution is going to be complex as well and probably a little messy. But we start with the fact that people live everywhere in wildlands now. You know, there's almost nowhere you can go except wilderness areas where people don't live right on the edge of a national forest or a state forest or tribal lands or, you know, any particular area. So whatever we do out there will affect some community of people somewhere. And we, we, can't, we can no longer deny that or, or to say that we know best and you people just have to go along with us because that, in the past we might've got away with that, but we don't get away with that now. So engaging people early and often is the key.
1: Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WCU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire chapter. Welcome, Dave, to the podcast. Welcome to the Forest Overstory. Thanks for coming. Do you want to tell a little bit tell us a little about yourself?
0: Sure. Well, I've had a long career in forest ecology and the study of natural resource science throughout the Western United States. Uh, that's primarily been as a federal research scientist. I'm now an emeritus, senior scientist with the U.S. Forest Service, and I'm also a professor of forest biology at the University of Washington in the Forestry School. So that's allowed me to cover a wide range of topics uh, throughout my career uh, with, with a focus primarily on uh, fire science and climate change. There's not a lot of people that you can
1: interview that have a Wikipedia page associated <laughs> with them, and you have one. And I looked it up, and it actually says you were invited to serve on the board of the IPCC. Did you Did you serve on that?
0: Yes, I did work with IPCC a number of years ago, and that was you know quite an interesting experience trying to bring to bear large scale issues relative to climate change, and not just for the United States and North America, but globally. And so I think that really kind of opened my eyes about uh, different ways of looking at things, uh, different forest ecosystems throughout the world. And uh, my my other kind of uh, big picture experience has been working with the National Climate Assessment. I worked with the third and fourth National Climate Assessments, with lead author for the fourth. And uh, this this time now that we have National Climate Assessment 5, I'm an author on the forest chapter. So that that continued involvement has kept me up to date on some of the bigger issues related to forests and climate change. I, I may be wrong, but wasn't your work with the IPCC,
2: is that the same year that they won the, the Nobel Prize? And are if you de was, facto
0: a, a yeah, Nobel Prize winner? Yeah, 2007. Al Gore and me, right? That's right. Um, <laughs> Anyway, there were, there were like hundreds of people who were co-recipients of that award, and I, I was one of them. It was a, certainly a, a proud moment, and I, I think that 2007 report by the IPCC was a watershed moment for the world because that report got everyone's attention, including in the United States, where at that point in time, climate change was not a particularly high-profile issue, uh, especially at the national level. So that really was a a moment at which things started to move, I think, in a more uh, positive direction in terms of taking action.
1: So before we really get into the meat of today's discussion, I just kind of want to get to know you, Dave. Um, Where are you from originally? Are you from Washington?
0: I grew up on the south side of Chicago, which might seem like an unlikely place for somebody in natural resource science to come from. But uh, despite the, uh, you know, the urban blight of a big city, uh, in in Cook County, which is where Chicago is, there are a lot of forest preserves, large areas of protected habitat that have been there for over 100 years now. And as a a kid, I spent a lot of time roaming around those woods, watching birds, studying trees, you know, doing what a kid does out there, including a lot of things my my mother never did know about, but... (laughs) it was it was a learning opportunity for me. it It fed my my introversion associated with nature. And it also just kind of kept in mind what the bigger term goal was for my own uh, life and my career was to someday someday, you know, spend more time in the woods and maybe do something professionally related to the outdoors.
2: yeah, i I can kind of I, I kind of see where you're coming from, and I think it maybe is a a common track where people that grew up in areas where nature was uh, in short supply come to value it that much more and maybe want to protect it, you know, with their career uh, down the line.
0: And what what that that experience brought out to me was how important some of those um, early childhood experiences are for people. You know, and a lot of kids now, when we have increasingly urbanizing Uh, population in the United States. A lot of kids don't have that experience anymore. Um, When I was teaching uh, some of the introductory courses in forest biology at the University of Washington, I would always try to understand what outdoor experiences a lot of the students had. Very infrequently did I have students in that class who came from rural areas. They're almost all from urban areas. Many of these kids, you know, now around 20 years old, had never been camping before mm. and here they are learning about biology some of them very passionate about environmental science but just hadn't didn't have that personal opportunity to get outdoors and experience things so i think that's something that you know the broader forest community natural resource community really needs to keep in mind is not just about folks in rural areas but also folks in urban areas who still have a lot of passion about Nature.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because having lived or currently living in a rural area, Colville, it's not that there's a lack of people that are in the industry that are from rural areas. It just doesn't seem like a lot of them are going maybe through the collegiate academic route. I mean, if you look at the mills, the jobs that are provided through the mills, a lot of the consulting agencies, they hire a lot of local kids, the FFA programs. There's, there's a lot of involvement in it. It just seems like there's kind of this separation in the separation in the pathways that people take to get involved and engaged in these uh, careers later on in life.
0: Now, that just having those opportunities and those exposures to different opportunities is critical. And, you know, I'm, I'm speaking here as a first generation college student. Uh, neither of my parents went to high school. You know, they grew up in a depression, they're poor. Um, we didn't have an academic background, but yet they provided me, you know, the opportunity to do whatever I wanted to do. And so I did have that grounding there, but there's, there are still many, many people who you know, if they're not exposed to this at an early age, you never get that vision in your head. Hey, I could go to college. Hey, I could be a professor. I could be a scientist. I could be, you know, some other profession. And it's increasingly important to, to go to college, even for a couple of years, if you can, because it's very competitive. So that's, that's why I'm a great believer in, um, you know, expanding opportunities for folks in rural areas, and lower economic situations, just just to give them a chance to see something different in the world.
1: Were you involved in Scouts or any other youth programs when you were younger that kind of connected you with the outdoors?
0: Well, I was in Cub Scouts. And so we had some of that. There, there weren't a whole lot of uh, outstanding uh, camping trips in the Chicago area, unfortunately. And uh, the other thing, I, I was always involved in sports from the time I was about eight years old up through high school and benefited a lot from the mentorship of many coaches and managers and, you know, men in, in our community. Um, I, From the time I was 12 years old on, my, my father had passed. And so having that mentorship of these men who cared about trying to, you know, basically, um, you know, expose kids to athletics, teamwork, uh, being outdoors, as opposed to nowadays, you know, I might be inside just looking at the computer. So all, all those things, whether it was sports or actually nature study, uh, had an influence on my connection with the outdoor environment. So, did you have like a
2: teacher, either in you know middle school or high school, or even a professor in college, that really you kind of honed in on on forestry specifically? or climate change or any of the interests that you have now? What was the impetus of that?
0: You know, I think I found my own way there. Mm. Um, From the time I was about 12 years old, I knew I wanted to be a scientist, which may sound kind of weird, but uh, that's what I gravitated to. I didn't know what that meant at the time. And it probably wasn't until I was in a PhD program at the University of Illinois that I actually knew what I wanted to do. And it, it just took a while to migrate to that path. I got a degree in zoology. I got a degree in, in botany, then got a degree in forest biology. So I, I wanted to be kind of, I guess I, I ended up being a generalist. I don't know if that was my original objective, but I'm glad I went that route because it really has, it's been a good foundation for me. Uh, nowadays, I think there's a tendency to focus on specialization and to get a little bit stove piped into a particular discipline. But if, if you're in the you know, forestry business or ecology, there's an expectation that you know a little bit about everything. And that's, that's what I find interesting about the world is there's always something to learn. And so I think that the pathway towards you know, what I ended up doing professionally was uh, partly random and partly purposeful. But I think it's, it, it would, you know there were a number of doors that opened at different times that allowed me to experience certain things had many, many positive, you know, experiences with uh, college professors and classes and, but mostly, um, you know, fellow graduate students. We kind of inspired each other, I think, to excellence. And I think that's still true in graduate education.
1: You know, one of the things that I find interesting about the, the generalist versus specialist conversation is in ecology, Right, even the word ecology, that that the uh, what's the Greek? Isn't it a Greek et- entomological or etymological word? I'm trying to think of my Oikos. vocabulary. Oikos, yeah. So of of the house, uh, it's all it's this all encompassing word, and I think to actually be a really good ecologist, you have to be a generalist. You have to think about. All these different facets, all these different ecosystem services, all these different habitat complexities and variables that are driving things to actually really be um, uh, capable in this field and make decisions um, that are going to, you know, be resi- be resilient and have good outcomes into the future.
0: I think that's absolutely true. And I, I've been grateful to have that generalist background, you know, in, in retrospect, certainly, um, You can always look back and say, well, I missed this, I missed that. But I I really think, you know, getting your academic training and college courses is, is one thing. But my first year on the job, I probably learned more than I did the previous four years in terms of the opportunity to interact with other scientists and resource managers and to be out in the field in places I had never been before. And I think the biggest challenge is to take that foundation of knowledge that you got and apply it to different places. I've always said that a good ecologist, you could blindfold them, put them on a plane, drop them down, and then they should be able to adapt fairly quickly by using a basic skill set of what they know about soils and plants and water and so forth. And I I still think that's true.
1: Yeah, you know, it's always funny. I'll see pictures of friends. And, you know, they'll be out hiking somewhere. And in the background, you can see maybe a couple trees or a shrub or maybe even a hillside. And in, in the last couple of years of my life, I've gotten really good at being able to identify the region or the state or even sometimes exactly like the city that they'll be in, because I can start to pick apart some of those, uh, the, the composition of that area or yeah, the, the plant types.
0: I, I do the same thing. It's it's a fun game. And, <laughs> yeah, and my, my wife and I do that all the time with TV shows and movies. <laughs> yeah, you know, like uh, w- one of our favorite shows is NCIS, and they're supposed to be located on the East Coast, and yet I always see scenes that have eucalyptus in them, which oh, means okay. Southern California. So I mean, that's just kind of playing games, but it is kind of it is fun to be able to identify with particular locations in terms of what the expectations are for the ecology, the plant species, and so forth of those uh, particular locations.
2: I, for the same reason my wife no longer enjoys watching movies or TV shows with me. Because <laughs> I get upset when they say they're in Pennsylvania and they're surrounded by ponderosa pines. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: Yeah. So what was your first job? You said you're, the first time you learned you know, more in the last four years, what, what was that job? Yeah, my, my
0: first job was with the US Forest Service, Pacific Southwest Research Station located in Riverside, California, which is about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. So here you take a guy who's from the Midwest, who has been on an airplane only one time before, and you launch him down to Southern California. So that was, you know, it's both challenging and exciting at the same time. But my, my job at that time was to work with a team developing a large-scale framework for evaluating the effects of wildfire on natural resources and especially the economics of wildfire. So I was the only biologist on the team. Uh, and the other folks had backgrounds in, in all, all kinds of physical sciences, operations research, economics, and so forth, uh, computer modeling. And uh, so that was a, an amazing First job experience to learn all this other stuff from other disciplines, and to be you know located in Southern California. I mean, here's a place that has palm trees and cactus and and so on, and a very different sort of social cultural um, area as well. But it was it was great. I, I can't think of a better place to get dropped into and have to learn. And the, the fascinating thing about being in California is the. A uh, plant diversity is just unbelievable. You know, at, at first it was a little frustrating. Then I felt lucky if I could key a plant out to the genus, you know, that was a successful day. But it also was very enriching in terms of, you know, opening my eyes to, you know, the ecology of other places and how I can learn about the ecology of places that I'm not familiar with at all. And it's it's eminently possible if you just put your nose down and spend time on it.
1: That, that's definitely something that I admire in both of you uh, is that you guys were willing to go get a job in a vastly different bio region than where <laughs> you were trained because I, you know, I was I'm born in Washington. I'm from the tri cities. I went to WSU and I moved into Northeastern Washington. I mean, I, I've, within four hours of where I've spent my entire life. And I was so nervous to apply for jobs outside of that because I was worried I wasn't going to be able to learn these new areas quite as effectively. But I also think that's what gives you guys a lot of um, uh, broader understanding is you guys took the time to go out and, um, you know, learn about a whole different region and and have become very successful with that.
0: Well, I I appreciate that. And uh, again, every, every move I've made, whether it's organizational or geographic has, has been a very positive thing, and I, to be honest, I get bored pretty easily. <laughs> so, you know, when I make these moves, it provides some intellectual stimulus and growth. Yeah. And so I found each, each move, even though you know they're a little bit scary, it's a little anxiety involved. You know, once things settled in, they were you know very positive in the long run.
1: So, what was it about? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Patrick.
2: Uh, no, no, no. I think your questions would be better than mine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, so what was it about the Pacific Northwest that drew you up here? Because you own land here now. So clearly you have some sort of sentimental attachment.
0: <sighs> what's, what's not to like about the Pacific Northwest? I mean, <laughs> you know, big trees, lots of water, um, pretty good diversity if you look across the state from west to east, certainly. Diversity of climates and mountains. You know, where I grew up in Illinois, the, there weren't too many mountains. At least I don't remember seeing any back there. And so that was a great inspirational and spiritual thing for me, to be honest. Uh, having a place that has so much water was kind of a psychological relief after living in Southern California for eight years. And, and just the, um, the tradition of science and natural resource science and ecology in the Northwest was so good. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the great ideas about forest ecology came out of the Northwest. And so that was also attractive. And I I just, when I, when I visited here, did my job interview, it felt like a home, felt like home. It felt right in my heart and has felt that way ever since. I cannot imagine, you know, living anywhere else at the moment. And my wife and I felt so attracted that we bought this 20 acres in Skagit County, Washington, and and that's now where our, our bodies and spirits reside. And so we, we feel pretty dug in at the moment. We still enjoy you know traveling other places, including Eastern Washington, Sean. <laughs> um, but we also like to visit the Desert Southwest and other places that kind of resonate with us in terms of um, you know the, the ambience of the place, both environmentally and, and spiritually.
2: I'd really like to hear more about your uh, your property, your tree farm. Um, can you tell us a little more about it? Does it have a name? What are your management goals? or so, you know, all those things that we like to talk to small forest owners about. I'm really curious to hear from someone who has, you know, so much knowledge and experience in forestry and, and what it's like to put it on the ground in 20 sure. years.
0: Well, do you have an hour or so to talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This, this is going to be a
1: long episode.
0: I already yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I might be asking you guys for some help as well. Um, so uh, it, it, our our tree farm is called Mountain Heart Tree Farm, and like I mentioned, is twenty acres. Uh, it's it been pretty abused, you know. In term, when we bought it, it was um, pretty much all the area except um, the what was in. Re- protected riparian buffers had been cut for commercial timber. And it had been cut, I think at least twice previously, probably the big cut a hundred years ago, and then some some high grading in between. So it was kind of a mess. Uh, The areas that had been recently clear cut hadn't been replanted. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine what the brush looked like. And it was a mixture of you know joy, pride, and anxiety when we first bought the property because the the task of restoring the landscape seemed overwhelming at the time. Now we're twenty years down the road and things are looking pretty good. But uh, you know, if I had to say one word, it would be restoration. That's been our objective on this landscape: is to uh, get trees growing again, get as many natives growing as possible. Um, I think right now it's probably the the hotspot of biodiversity in Skagit County, because we we have, I think, 110 different plant species on the property now, wow. which is, is pretty good. You know, a lot of the understory trees and understory shrubs that folks don't often plant. And so that's been fun to do that. But as I told a friend recently, it seems like I learn a lot by making mm-hmm. mistakes. And um, I, I suppose that's true of any profession, But I I really had some challenges early on in translating my professional experience in book learning, if you will, Mm -hmm. to a real landscape. So, you know, it's always vivid in my mind trying to replant an area that had been clear cut where the the logger had left a lot of hemlocks. And then what happens to hemlocks? They fall down and you had this uh, three acres of jackstrawed hemlocks and slash on the ground. And this is what I was trying to replant in. And I had in my mind, okay, 12 foot spacings on a big grid. Well, that's not exactly possible. You plant trees wherever you can and where you won't fall on your butt trying to do it. And so that that was a, you know, kind of a real world experience I had. And ever since then, I've tried to put some of that standard knowledge, traditional knowledge in the context of of what I've learned over the years. And I feel like I I might halfway know what I'm doing now, but I always benefit from talking to professionals like you, other folks at uh, WSU Extension, Conservation District, friends and colleagues. Whenever whenever I can, I get friends over and I have them walk the property with me. And I just ask them questions. What would you do here? What would you do there? And, um, you know, it's a big experiment every tree farm every forest is an experiment we try things see what works and so i think now i'm on the definitely on the positive side of the ledger but 20 years ago it wasn't clear it just takes a lot of time
1: did you buy that property while you were teaching at the university i did
0: and that was another challenge was you know having a full time job while taking on another full-time job of of restoring a forest. So that was uh, a significant challenge, but uh, in those days, sleep was optional.
1: Can, Can you think, this is gonna be more of a philosophical question, can you think of an example of something that you experienced or learned from your tree farm that you were able to take into your education in your ecology classes that you were teaching?
0: Almost everything. Um, but especially the, um, I think the relationship between forests and landscapes was critical. You know, so much of forestry education doesn't talk about soils, doesn't talk about geomorphology. And that's, that's the foundation of what you're doing out there. Um, so I think just, you know, being in a particular location, identifying what elevation am I at? What aspect am I on? Uh, Am I in a concavity or convexity? Uh, What are the soils like here? What are the drainage properties? All that kind of fits into this um, complex regression equation that tells us what we should be doing at that particular place in the land. And I think a lot of forestry education is too narrow in that respect. And that maybe some of our instructors don't have that broad background we were talking about before and can bring that to bear on the situation. So what I learned and what I learned to teach was don't give students formulas, give them a framework through which they can make decisions. And that's what I always did in teaching was we would go through problems, we would go through projects, and we would have students figure out What they thought would work best, and they usually, you know, in when they worked in groups, they almost always came up with a good solution. So I've found that as a as a good approach to get people to think through things rather than, you know, try to remember the right answer from the book or from a lecture.
1: Yeah, my uh, advisor in college, Mark Swanson, Doctor Mark Swanson, I should say, was actually one of your students, and he said that the ecology graduate level course that you taught was the hardest course he ever took. Uh, in his, in his schooling.
0: Well I appreciate that comment from from Mark. I'll take that as a compliment. It, it might <laughs> account for why the enrollment decreased over the years. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, I, I, I you know this is a graduate course is it's good to make things challenging, but I I really emphasize the um, the projects, the analysis, not exams. I don't I don't think I even gave exams in that class. Maybe I did. Certainly not a final exam. But Critical thinking is the most important thing for an ecologist and the most important thing for resource managers. Um, For many years, I taught classes for fire managers, and critical thinking was the number one thing in there. And a lot of folks had never been asked to do that, never been given the opportunity to take a situation, analyze it themselves, and make a decision. They were more concerned about following protocols and standard processes. And, you know, that. That doesn't always work. It certainly doesn't work in the, the the new world of climate change. We have to to start stretching that a little bit.
2: I have to imagine it was probably really rewarding. Well, well, one to train new students and new foresters and new biologists and and so on, but also to to train uh, people like Mark Swanson that are going to go on and then you know advance knowledge in the field. Um, what, what was that? What's that like to to be such a player in this field and and have trained so many uh, academics and and, sh- you know, been someone to really shape forestry in this region?
0: Well, if I had to pick one reward that's a highlight in my career, it has been the training of students and employees over the years and providing them the tools and the, and the capability to to do Sustainable resource management writ large, yeah. And you know there were a lot of mistakes made in forestry up until about 1990. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the clear cutting of the West, of course, is the biggest issue. But there, you know, there wasn't this focus on sustainability and, and future planning and restoration and so forth. So what I, I've always told the students is, you got a kind of a mess out there. You got a big challenge. But the fun part is, for the rest of your careers, you get to work on bringing some of these forests back. You get to implement sustainable resource management throughout the entire U.S. Forest Service, National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, uh, state lands, private lands. And so I think now we're seeing that shift. And you know, some of my students are working right in the middle of that, which is, is pretty nice. I'll, I'll have to say, though, Uh, my experience with students was I generally learned more from them than I learned, than than they learned from me. Um, especially, I I would say almost every student was more analytically adept than I was. I didn't spend as much time on statistics as I Mm -hmm. could have when I was younger. And now these folks can do statistics and computer programming and all kinds of good things, which helped them in their job. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, if I did anything, I helped to, uh, perhaps enforce upon them this concept of critical thinking, how important that was, because I wanted them to be able to go into any job and apply that. You know, one of my students became a, uh, a cardio specialist, MD. Mm. You know, other students ended up doing other kinds of things. But I think this, the same skill set applies to most other professions. Um, most Having said that, most of my students did go into some aspect of natural resources, and I'm, I'm terribly proud of, of the work they've been doing.
1: You know, that's one thing about natural resources that I, I really like, and, and it kind of ties back for me to a class that I took, is systems thinking, um, that that there are all these variables that are interconnected, there are feedback loops, positive and negative. And, you know, you make one decision here and it has this ramific, this ripple effect across time and space and through the ecological webs, and, and that that framework of thinking that kind of mindset of thinking it works really well in natural resource management, but it also works really well in in a lot of other aspects of life. And so it's cool that this training, which, you know, you wouldn't think, um, you know, learning tree species and how they allocate themselves themselves across the landscape would relate to, you know, my ability to do my taxes or something like that. But <laughs> it does. There are these just weird parallels that have helped prepare me personally to be a better human, not just in my my job or my
0: work. I'm really glad you brought up that topic of systems thinking. Every class I ever taught at the University of Washington and in other trainings with the U.S. Forest Service The first part of every class was always system thinking. We spent an entire day, sometimes two days, on that topic. And we had students draw systems. And what we found was every person will draw a system differently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that brings to, to mind that there's not one way to look at things. Different people look at things differently. But as long as they look at it in a systems fashion, they're more likely to number one, understand the system they're working on. And number two, to have a little humility about the system and about what they may not know or might be hidden behind the pieces that they've described. So thank you for bringing that up. I think if if there's one thing that we need focus on in natural resource sciences, that would be it.
2: So I want to kind of return to to what you said earlier about restoration. I I like what you you said about how, yeah we kind of we kind of in, in not just in the Pacific Northwest but just all around are, are a little bit inheriting a mess of the last century of, of, of management and and just trying to get uh, forests back to a place of, of resiliency um, uh, of, of being able to you know reflect at least some of the elements that they did prior to some of those mistakes while still yielding sustainable uh, products. But it's a really difficult task, right? I mean, restoration is difficult on its own. And then you, you add the additional complexity of climate change. And now you're looking at a moving target. And I'm starting to feel some of this more practically. I recently took on some uh, a role with WSU helping to, to manage one of their... Um, field stations in, in Western Washington and there's a lot of restoration to be done and I'm telling you I, I, I know what you mean when you when you say you know you're ta- you're putting it on the ground you're putting these these practices you talk about all the time on the ground and it is a no small feat there is just so much to be done but then the the sort of instability of of the future makes it really difficult to know you know I'm putting all this work in is it, the, is it still the right thing? And I kind of wonder for you as a, a scientist and as a land manager, how do you deal with that
0: uncertainty? Well, first of all, I'm glad you brought up restoration. And so restoration didn't exist until about 30 years ago as a, as a concept, as a discipline. And so now it's very well established. You know, in the state of Washington, there are so many people Who do restoration now, you know, public agencies, um, lots of non-governmental organizations, conservation groups, tribes, you know, it's a very entrenched concept. And although I use the term restoration myself, I'm starting to use the term building resilience Mm -hmm. more often. You alluded to that yourself right there, Patrick, because, you know, we can't restore to a past target anymore. That's not, that's not far enough. It's good if we can do that. You know, we've usually had these targets based on historical range of variability of, you know, whatever it is, fire or water or or insects or whatever. Um, But so if we can at least do that, that's good. But then we can't stop there. We have to push it into what does the future range of variability look like. So that's why building resilience is maybe a better term in the future, not to throw out restoration, but just don't stop there. Keep going. And not to focus our, our targets so much on species. You know, if we have the right, the right species out there, then we'll be okay. I'm more concerned about functionality. Maybe we can tolerate some change in species distribution and abundance if we still have a functional forest. It's productive, has good photosynthetic rates, it provides habitat for the critters we want and so forth. So that's, that's kind of a, a long uh, background to answering your question about you know, how, I, how I think about the uncertainty. Doing a risk assessment is the first step to any project, you know whether it's a restoration project or reforestation, whatever you want to call it. Say, okay, here, here are some things I can do. What are the risks involved here? What's the likelihood that my trees that I plant will survive? Uh, What's the likelihood that deer are going to eat my trees? Uh, What's the likelihood that we'll have a a big flood in this area or whatever? And then you implement risk management that addresses those risks. There's two, two aspects to risk. One is the magnitude of something that may or may not occur. And the other is the probability that something may or may not occur. So on the west side, you know, if we have a fire, of course, that's going to have a big effect, but the probability of that fire is relatively low. So you need to look at both aspects of it. Then the risk management needs to take into account, just like we were talking about before, the local landscape, what things look like uphill, what things look like downhill, and then make a decision. You know, But I think the most important thing there is to have whatever restoration or building resilience approach you use diversify it. Don't lock yourself into one particular thing throughout the landscape. Maybe do a few different things here and there. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And so that's that's my way of trying to kind of spread the risk on my own tree farm as I do different things in different places. And the assumption is that at least in some and probably most places, things will work out. For the best, but even if something doesn't work, if I screwed up, made a bad decision in one place, I've still got the rest of it to fall back on. And I think that's a a reasonable approach for any landowner or forest manager.
1: So I'm I actually am really glad that you, the way you stated that with restoration, because the word restore implies that you're moving to some precondition, some uh, condition that is not currently in. And I think you know, we all have these uh, nightmares of pretty much all the change in the last hundred years since pre-European settlement, the Euro-American settlement period was where we kind of start to draw that line. But whenever I meet with landowners for the first time, we always get into this, this discussion of what is native, right? What, what are the plants that we see as native on this landscape? And, and I think that, that the definition is constantly changing. And so like if we go back to, um, especially the last, you know, from 100 years ago to 40,000 years ago, you know, we, we tried to remove humans from the conversation of native participants in the ecosystem, but we were vastly a part of the ecosystem and we've been dictating what that ecosystem was for a long time. And so I think it's interesting that we try to restore to a pre-European settlement period when Native Americans prior to that period were like you said actually managing ba- basing based on functionality. They were managing systems that, you know, provided the ecosystem services that they needed to, you know, sustain their culture and their communities, whether that was fish, whether that was deer, whether that was uh, lodgepole for building, you know, whatever that resource was, they were constantly managing it based on the environment that they were in so that they could, you know, rely on that, um, that system. And so I think it's, yeah, we, we have to change the way we think about, uh, managing our forests, not to revert it to some prior condition, but to look at the, the structure and the, uh, the composition and, uh, you know, all these different facets of the forest that then end up making it more, like you said, resilient to the future. Because that ultimately is the goal, is that we can have this snowball that continues to roll in the face of all of, you know, the the bumps and hurdles that we're, we're going to cross in the next 150 years and theoretically much longer.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great point. You know, even if we look at, um, take Westside, Washington. Our common tree species, Douglas fir, western hemlock, western red cedar, they're very common right now, but they've been common for only about 3,000 years, and that, I should say not just common, but dominant across the landscape, and that's only about five or six generations of trees, because these species all grow to be 500 years plus, right? So that's not that's not many generations of of an organism to say that that's sort of our archetype or that's our target. Uh, The other thing you alluded to was this concept of naturalness. And I think a lot of people have sort of a uh, a gestalt impression of what they consider to be natural or normal or desirable. Um, But whenever I talk about this concept of restoration, I, I really, one of the first things I say is, we aren't working with natural systems and most of the planet right now. You know, if we look at the state of Washington, over 90% of our forests have been cut at least once, sometimes twice. Um, you know, we've, we've made a lot of changes in terms of agriculture, urbanization, um, lots of non-native species across the landscape, um, lots of uh, exotic insects and pathogens. And, oh, yeah, there's those millions of people we also have out there. And we've, we've done things also like, you know, basically remove beavers from the landscape. Beavers were a keystone animal in terms of creating forest structures and wetlands and wildlife habitat until, you know, the late 1800s, and we removed that. So rather than get hung up on what is natural, why don't we talk about what we want? What are our objectives? What species do we want? What kinds of functionality do we want? You know, if somebody likes to have an open forest with well-spaced trees, regardless of the other benefits that might provide, say on the east side of the Cascades in terms of fire reduction, if that's a personal perspective, if you if it's if aesthetics are one of your objectives, nothing wrong with that. As long as we don't get you know too far out and say, well, I'd, I'd like to plant a lot of uh, monkey puzzle trees on my land or some, you know, something like that, or eucalyptus or whatever, that might be a little bit on the edge. But um, if we put that concept of naturalness aside, it opens up a lot of opportunities and creative thinking for us. And let's do some experimentation, share ideas, and you know, find out what works in this new uh, climate change world. Well, you're kind of touching on
2: something that I've really wanted to discuss with you. There's a lot of things that Mm -hmm. I want to discuss with you about climate change. But the, uh, you know, the monkey puzzle joke is funny, but you'd be surprised (laughs) just how close I get to that to that uh, question. But, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot nowadays with uh, a shifting climate is shifting species. Uh, assisted migration and whether or not we should do it versus something like uh, you know switching seed zones uh, using trees from more southerly seed zones which is something that i think is kind of becoming much more acceptable you know even in the last few years it seems like people are talking about that um as as or at least being much more open to that but i know myself i get a lot of questions about assisted migration uh, you know particularly uh moving redwoods up up here, assuming that that's just going to be the sort of status quo in 50 or 100 years. This area is going to look like Northern California. Um, And and I think you would probably I I assume you would call that a little bit of a leap um, in moving species that far. But I'm kind of curious in your mind, you know, what what is acceptable not acceptable, but um, what's within a margin of risk? to try right now? What, what would we, what would you say is kind of out of bounds versus might be worth exploring right now?
0: So Patrick, you're opening the door on a huge topic right now. <laughs> and, you know, it's so interesting because assisted migration was something that um, the forest community didn't want to talk about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now it seems like that's all they want to talk about because they've seen some adverse things happening following recent droughts and so forth. And I need to you know, present the big caveat here that there's precious little science to support what we should be doing with assisted migration. Right. That doesn't mean we've been negligent, it just means we don't currently have the information that we need to make decisions. And we, we might not have it in a timely way And we still need to move forward with those decisions. So you mentioned the word risk, and I'm going to go back to my earlier comment on doing risk assessments. I think that's exactly what we need to do with assisted migration. And after talking to a lot of colleagues who know a lot more about forest genetics and other topics than I do, and thinking about it and looking at, at data, I've concluded that we should start thinking about expanding our seed zones. Uh, you know, using seed zones farther south or at lower elevations under the assumption that those um, trees, that genetic stock would be more uh, tolerant of a warmer climate. We don't actually know that's true in all cases, but it's, it's a pretty good assumption. So, yes, I, I definitely support landowners uh, increasing the diversity of your nursery stock if you can. So maybe you want to plant 50 percent of the local seed zone and 50 percent farther south. I mean, this is just guesswork. There's no recipe. But I do think that the risk of doing that is very low. And the payoff might be significant. Right. In terms of moving species, I think it would be reasonable in some cases to move species slightly farther north than their current distribution. So what is slightly farther? I have no idea. I'm just going to say 100 miles <laughs> so <laughs> um, under the assumption that you could probably do that without too many negative outcomes. But to do it I'd say at first maybe experimentally or as part of a larger project but don't just go out there and plant a thousand acres of, of that species In terms of moving species long distance, you know your your point about moving uh, Coast redwood, or giant sequoia, or white fir, or sugar pine, up into Washington. I, th- I think for now, let's let's not do that, right. because if we're looking at risk assessment, I think there's a significant risk that those species will not be resistant to some of the local pathogens and insects. They may also bring in pathogens and insects that local species are not resistant to, so. If somebody wants to plant a few redwoods, I'd say go for it. Plant a few sequoias, I'd say go for it. I've actually planted about 20 incense cedars on my property just because I kind of like them. (laughs) And uh, they they do grow quite well. But to do this very thoughtfully, and before we move species hundreds of miles, I think we need a little bit more scientific information about, uh, about those risks. You know, there are plant pathologists, forest pathologists working on this right now. And like I said, we might not have the information very soon, but I think in 20 or 30 years, we'll have enough information to, to do those sorts of things. The other consideration with moving species long distances, at least if, um, if you're interested in timber production at all, is there may not be a market for the use of that wood. Yeah. And maybe the combination of those species with local species creates some ecological outcomes we could not have foreseen. So I think we don't, we want to make decisions that have low risks, and uh, if we take higher risk, do it very cautiously, experimentally for now.
1: So I I love to play devil's advocate with things, and I had two thoughts that came up in this conversation, and you actually answered one of them, and that was your comment with uh, invasive species or insects, forest health problems being transferred with or being prone to the new species that are in the area. I think the other one that I'm really interested in is we have a lot like if you if, so everyone's trying to pick plants from California and move them up to Washington. And that's because I think everyone looks at the the latitudinal gradient of moisture precipitation. And that seems to be we would think these would match what the new precipitation gradient is. However, seasonally, moisture is not the same uh, in how it's delivered between california and here and i think a lot of people think that if you move them across these environments while yes in a year or an annual span it might be similar when they get it will be very different and i think you've talked about it in some of your writing things like temperatures and bud development in certain trees how that will match i'm curious you know because we the the tricky thing about climate change is the future prediction of it and Models and predicting, it always gets a little wishy washy and we try our best, but it's always a prediction. And I think when you move species, you're trying to make this prediction of what is it best going to move into and and what would be its ability to evolve or adapt into that new site. How are we really good at doing that modeling of being able to say, you know, this is going to match this, but then be able to model all of the parameters that that species is going to need to be able to successfully then, you know, establish and become a part of the biodiversity that we would need to have that resiliency in the forest.
0: We certainly don't know enough to do that yet. We know a lot about trees. We know a lot about the natural history of forests in in the Western United States, but some of the things like you, you just mentioned about the seasonality of, of uh, life history of trees and uh, bud break and pollination, all these sorts of things are, are certainly factors to think about. I, I do feel like the biggest factor we need to consider is the effective or the effects of more frequent and extensive droughts. Uh, we have dry summers in the Pacific Northwest. We always have dry summers, especially on the east side. And those, that dryness might become more accentuated in the future. So that's, that's likely to be the big bottleneck that species will have to go through. Now, I, I'm actually a pretty big believer in the genetic diversity of our existing tree species and seed zones. Uh, most of these Western conifers have high diversity, high genetic diversity. They've been around for many thousands of years under different climatic regimes. And you take a species like Douglas fir, which is distributed from British Columbia down to Mexico. So we know that species has a lot of genetic diversity. It's it's found all those niches all over the West where it can live. It flourishes on the West side. It does reasonably well on the East side of the Cascades. And I'm also not willing to give up on these species. So I know a lot of folks, uh, particularly small private landowners, will say, I don't want to plant red cedars because I'm afraid they're going to die. In this drier weather, and I think there are lots of places on our landscapes where we can plant them. In uh, you know north aspects, drainages, uh, concavities, you know those microsites are something we need to think about harder and more consciously now. Is not just have a prescription for planting all Douglas fir or all of some other species, but where does each species? Where will each species fit in the future? So I think a species like like western red cedar will do just fine in many locations if you plant it in the right spot and if you manage the densities of these stands such that you minimize competition for water. So I'm I at the moment I think we need to you know take take what we have at hand, what we know about well, work with that, do it in a smart way and gradually work in, you know, perhaps other genetics in other ways of doing things, but not to throw out our current methodology and toolkit.
2: Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. And to kind of focus in on on western red cedar as an example, you know, dealing with the red cedar decline that we are uh, in in Western Washington uh, for sure, and I know in Eastern Washington too. The way I've tried to explain it to landowners is that what, what we're seeing is that you know. the the habitable zone of this species is maybe just getting a little more narrow. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. Um, So like, you know, a a cedar growing on a spot that's just short of being too dry for what it likes may not be able to grow in that particular spot in the next 50 years, right? But that doesn't mean that there's not plenty of uh, areas that are, are totally hospitable to Western red cedar and continue to grow, as you mentioned, drainages, sites with just better moisture, um, so that, that's kind of how I have been framing it. Cause it is really easy to see Western red cedar dying along roadsides, you know, especially these areas that are already under a lot of stress and just kind of click and think, okay, well, red cedar's not the tree anymore. You know, it's just not the tree I'm going to pick, but I, I don't think that we need to go that far. I also still have a lot of hope for our, our native species, uh, and the, the genetic variability within them.
0: You know there's there's some interesting recent studies out of California of uh, some of the higher elevation forests in the Sierra Nevada that seem to already be adapting to a warmer climate. They've actually altered their genetic composition a bit. Again these are, these are some studies done by folks who know a lot more about forest genetics than I do but that's that's very heartening to me that we can we can see we can measure. Uh, this kind of response over you know, a period of, of many decades as opposed to centuries. And it gives us hope for the, the genetic uh, foundation that these conifers have. That doesn't mean it's going to work for every species, but at least there's some evidence that that can occur at a relatively t- short time scale in response to a warmer climate. So I try to look for the positive uh, aspects of, of things in life in general, and so I, I think if, if we stick with some of our, our native species, current tools, current approaches that will reduce our risk in the short run. You know, once we get into the latter part of the 21st century, you know, we'll have to see what things look like then. We might reevaluate that approach. Do you think that, I mean, everybody's so
1: focused on either taking species and moving them out of their range or taking even within species within a range, moving it down in its precipitation tolerance. Do you think there's a role for, Processes such as selective breeding to actually contain just one species and then try to breed genetic uh, traits that are more resistant. So even just saying, you know, going to Douglas fir and selecting interior Douglas fir and crossbreeding it with maybe the, the coastal Douglas fir and then planting that kind of hybridized uh, variety in into areas, we
0: think that you might see more drought. I don't see why not. I mean, we've been breeding plants and trees for, you know, over a century now. And so that's certainly a very reasonable approach. Um, Like any uh, process, we should probably do that cautiously and selectively. Yeah. Um, People get get upset about genetic engineering these days. Uh, I don't particularly. I think there may be a role for that. Um, You know, we certainly have been breeding uh, trees uh, like... um, uh, you know rust resistant western white white pine, white pine yeah and rust resistant eastern white pine and now we have some rust resistant white bark pine and we may need those to save that species yeah because that's a species that certainly is in pretty rough shape around the west and we have small populations that are declining quickly due to not just blister rust but also in some cases mountain pine beetles um, in some cases, lack of fire. So they, they really are, are quite stressed at the moment. And if we can get some rust-resistant genes out in the landscape, and I think that, you know, we're, we're dealing here with a, an exotic disease, a non-native disease. So it's, we need to take whatever measures we can to retain that species. And uh, I hope we don't get to that desperation point with some of our more common conifers and hardwoods, but um, let's be prepared. And, you know, what, what would we do If we got to that point, I think that's the question.
1: Um, So I was just, I wanted to jump in on something you just said right there and you were talking about bark beetles. So I I have conversations with some of the um, local forest and entomologists up here. And one of the fears that they have are the tree species at the bottom of the uh, environmental condition gradient, right? So specifically ponderosa pine along the sagebrush uh, uh, kind of, Elevational band, forest type band, um, and the worry is that we are going to increasingly see areas where ponderosa pine can't even be established, or even you could go up into the mi- the mixed conifer, the dry dug fir, ponderosa pine mixtures, and you know this action of wanting to put douglas fir or sorry ponderosa pine into these stands because it's the more drought tolerant species, but you know one of the issues that's been posed against that is we see even in native species, native forest health issues that attack things like Douglas fir beetle, or in the case of Ponderosa pine, you know, you have Ips, you've got a red turpentine beetle, you've got the Western pine beetle, you've got the mountain pine beetle. I mean, there's a litany of native pests and pathogens that we could actually be homogenizing the landscape. And I know you've talked about diversity as a a major way to manage against or manage for resiliency. But how do you do that when you're already at the fringe of environmental conditions that can really only
0: support one species at its current point? That's a tough problem. Um, I'm glad you brought up Ponderosa Pine on the east side of Washington in particular. Uh, There have definitely been some, some interesting situations following recent big wildfires, for example, where regeneration is being planned. And the question is, particularly at the lower elevation on the interface with sagebrush and grassland, should we put pines back there? And I think you have to take this on a case by case basis. You know, look at the topography, geomorphology, and soils and see what the likelihood is that those ponderosa pines uh, could tolerate increasing drought stress in the future. I know of at least one case on the Okanagan Wenatchee National Forest where when they started looking at the soils, where the trees had burned, they found that the soils were more characteristic of grassland soils, suggesting that the trees were a relatively new presence on that landscape. So maybe that's an area where you let it go back to grassland or shrubs and don't try to to force ponderosa pine back into it. So it's critical to look at each particular location. In terms of kind of a monocultural concept, like you mentioned, we could certainly encourage genetic diversity in those stands. That's one thing. And also try to reduce any other sources of stress other than, than moisture stress that we can. That usually means, you know, doing good uh, stand density management, keeping density sufficiently low to reduce competition. And then any other stressors that might occur, but that would be the, the most common one. So that that's probably about all that we can do. But I, th- I think it's, I think there's a little bit of panic going on right now and that, um, you know, if we have one regeneration failure, it's always going to fail. I think that's always been true, whether we we're dealing with uh, natural regeneration from seeding or whether we're planting trees, they don't always all take. I've I've planted trees on my property and most years they do wonderful, but I had a big planting that had a terribly dry spring and summer and, and most of them died. So we're always going to have that and we have to assess, again, the risk of that occurring versus something else occurring. So we'll, we'll be doing a lot of experimentation, I think, across the landscape, especially in some of our east side forests to determine, you know, what are those sites where ponderosa pine will do best and what are our, our uh, genetic provenances that will do best as well. I wish I had like a really solid answer, but that's, <laughs> that's the best we can do. That's pretty good.
2: <laughs> well, I, I'm glad that you brought up regeneration, because um, it's one of the another one of the things I, I wanted to talk about. You know, considering climate change, I, I really think that that is going to be one of the most susceptible stages or, or or practices projects for forest owners. I mean, it's going to be one of those points where people are really at a lot of you know at, at higher risk because well the seedlings are are at higher risk, they're just sensitive at that stage and i've already heard of of, you know regeneration projects um or reforestation projects failing um because of particularly hot dry summers um yeah i think of i think it was 2018 where we didn't get any rain in the month of may in southwest washington it was really bad uh last year we had the heat dome and and things like this that can really knock you know a, a whole year Uh, setback on, on reforestation. It's, it's something that people want to avoid, um, for sure. And most people don't have insurance on their seedlings. So that, that money's, you know, it's coming out of their pocket. So I'm kind of curious from you, um, you know, what, what do you see going forward? Obviously planting more drought tolerant species is an option, but in terms of actual reforestation practices, what are some, some options for people to kind of encourage or increase the likelihood of survival?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of planting in the fall. Mm, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> now, you know, and for better or worse, the the um, our nurseries tend to release their seedlings in late winter to early spring. That's the typical cycle. And I've certainly had much better success fall planting. And so what I've been doing on our property recently is I'll get seedlings you know, in the spring, I plant them, plant them uh, in, in the garden in some good soil with plenty of water. And then I get them about three times bigger and I plant them out in the fall. And those trees have a much higher probability of success. And, you know, not just survival, but surviving in the face of competition from shrubs and so forth. So that's one big one. I'd love to see a lot more flexibility in our our forestry production systems for seedlings and and distribution of those systems. All the native plant sales are in the late winter, early spring. Same thing. Would that hold true for both East and Western Washington? I think so. Um, And you'd have to be a little bit more careful there because of the snow situation. Um, So that's something definitely to think about. But to try to identify the, you know, whatever time it may be that would be the ideal time, as opposed to we always did it this way, so we're going to continue to do it this way. So think think creatively and flexibly. It might, have, might vary a lot, um, Sean, in terms of uh, where exactly you were at, especially low elevation versus high elevation on the east side. So that that's one thing. Um, the other thing is to, at least where you can, do this to use some kind of mulch. Now, I know we can't, if you're planting thousands of trees, you're not going to be hauling mulch around on a, on a uh, mountainside, but, you know, use some of the local uh, organic material that's in the area, or, or maybe you have some slash left over that you can uh, uh, masticate, grind it up, and use it as mulch on the site. Just k- kick up something around the base of that tree to hold moisture. And then the other thing is to reduce the other sources of stress, which often is herbivory from deer or voles or, or whatever, beavers. And uh, I just, just this morning saw an email discussion on that topic, and a lot of people doing restoration have tremendous problems from critters that like to eat trees. And in some cases, that may be a much bigger stress than, than water is in, yeah. in certain locations. So all, all of those things, but to reduce stressors where you can. That means more expense, more time, but we may just have to do that.
2: What do you think of uh, scattering logging debris? after mm-hmm. harvesting there was a paper that came out uh showing that 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 really helped with one soil retention but it also reduced noxious weeds after harvesting yeah. and it was even uh, there was even less herbivory because deer can be kind of lazy they don't really like to go through all the logs and all yeah. that stuff <laughs> So I, I, to me, it seems like a win-win-win, ex, except maybe for the tree planters. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. may, you may be paying a premium for for planting on bigger jobs, but or fire-prone areas, fire-prone areas too. You're, yeah, you're even on the west side. Your your likelihood of fire would increase um, at least for a few years.
0: Yeah, I, I saw that paper too. I really liked that paper. It was intriguing. I, I greatly support. You know, keeping as much of that organic material on the site as possible and is logical for that site. Now, on the east side, like you said, Sean, we need to be careful with that. But we can always put large material out there. Hmm. We don't want to put three inches or less diameter stuff because that's what would burn actively on the surface. But we can certainly put out logs, uh, big branches, those sorts of things without increasing fire risk and they they sometimes they even provide shade for little seedlings, but they retain moistures, they add organic matter. Absolutely. Let's let's do more of that. It kind of it kinda kills me sometimes when I see these enormous slash piles with large woody material in them. And then they just go up in smoke or they just decompose in place because there's a a real valuable role I think in regeneration for some of those uh, forests.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble by doing this, so I'm going <laughs> to leave the name of the researcher and the paper out of it. Um, but I do know somebody who's working on just a very simple study of planting seedlings underneath shade logs um, and then changing the aspect or the the, the position in which they're facing. Uh, and from what I've heard, the results have actually been very promising, that just something as simple as you know a large 10-inch or larger um, coarse woody debris lay down on the ground and then seedlings planted along that uh, is having a profound effect on the ability of just the temperature and the small amount of precipitation that doesn't evaporate out of that point. Uh, And it's just enough for that seedling to get big enough, get its roots deep into the ground uh, where it can survive.
0: That totally makes sense. You know, earlier in my career, I did a lot of work on subalpine forest ecology, and we looked at regeneration of subalpine fir, mountain hemlock, those sorts of species after wildfires. It's a pretty harsh landscape at high elevation. And the uh, regeneration success was almost, well, it was just huge in terms of uh, whether or not a seedling was behind a rock, a log, or a shrub. They always did better by, by a huge statistical amount. So that, that got my attention very early on. But if we don't have that debris, we can still use things like shade cards, you know, little little cardboard barriers or something out there. Some people use those routinely. Another expense, a little more time for the tree planters, but it, it gives us another tool that we can think about using, especially if we're on a south aspect, you know, maybe not on, on a north aspect, but on those really harsh sites, that might be the way to do it.
1: So, you know, I w- when I sit down with people sometimes and I always get philosophical, I love to ask the question about some of our fringe sites, um, specifically the ones that are typically a little bit more moist right now, um, where we might see rose bushes growing. And I'm, I guess I'm thinking of the classical east side situations here: rose bushes, twin flowers, a lot of the grand fir cedar mixtures. And I think there's some worry that we need to manage these for fire, or we need to decrease stand density. And so then I, I asked the philosophical question of: in the face of climate change, in these um, rarer forest types do we protect them in in a way that we look at it as protecting uh, a rare form into the future to increase that diversity of forest types or do we actively manage them to change the structure or to change the species composition in a way that we think is going to be more resilient to climate change into the future with the accept- acceptance of we are losing some biodiversity at the landscape level and and so I I still want you to ask the question, but it seems like you've already sort of answered it today In that you've talked about these, you know, go find these little uh, micro sites or, you know, the headwaters of a stream or, uh, you know, a bowl down in the bottom of a valley. And maybe that's where we try to protect these. So then I guess my 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 follow up question then would be at at the, the, the scale of a landscape. I mean, maybe for small forest landowners, this question is a little easier because you're only thinking about 20 acres. I'll even for them. That's a lot of land. But at the scale of a landscape, how do we go about trying to identify and find all of these tiny little variations in the landscape where we say, oh, okay, you know, let's let's plant this little one acre strip with cedar right here and then the rest of this level of, of granularity seems like it's too complex. And then when we put that in the face of efficiency and trying to manage and become resilient against climate change, which is only speeding up faster. I, it, to me, I don't know how those can both happen at the same time.
0: Well, what you have stated here is is one of our biggest challenges in natural resource management is how do we do this, this task of building resilience and being climate smart at large spatial scales. So, I mean, fortunately we have, you know, great geospatial maps nowadays. We have great remote sensing imagery. And I, I think that at least my experience working with national forests they're doing a pretty good job of identifying some of those special places out on the landscape that could be susceptible to that big wildfire or to some other some other particular problem that could occur so i think to a great extent we we kind of know where some of those places are then it comes down to the hard decision of how many of these can we invest in significantly to preserve or to augment or to modify somehow with uh, maybe some climate smart management. And there may be some trade-offs. We can't do it everywhere uh, for every particular lo- uh, every particular national forest or state forest or whatever, but to at least be aware of what, what's out there. I mean, the, the same thing is true of endangered species. You know, by law, we're required to protect endangered species, but we need to have a functional, viable ecosystem That provides the habitat for those species. So, we can't do this species by species or plant community by plant community anymore. I I do think, Sean, that, you know, particularly for the, the example you cited for these east side kinds of special communities, that, you know, fire will be an increasing risk on north aspects, in drainages, and even in riparian areas. I think we're already seeing a lot of that happening. We used to think that the the riparian areas were kind of fireproofed, you know, asbestos forest out there, but we know there's no such thing anymore uh, given the right kind of high severity fire. So I do think if I were to make one trade-off, it would be to do some management that would reduce fire risk by removing uh, or, or maybe decreasing the density of trees and also reducing surface fuels where possible. That could be prescribed burning, it could be mechanical, whatever, but I, I think that's the... That's the big risk out there: is fire to you know any system anywhere on the east side, and even increasingly a little bit more on the west side.
1: Um, you mentioned prescribed fire, <laughs> and interesting debate for Eastern Washington right now. I, I think the the use of fire is is known that it is a tool. However, there are certainly drawbacks to it. Um, it's uh, relatively uncontrolled. I will, I will, that is definitely within a bubble, but we are getting much better at controlling them. Um, it is risky. And I think a lot of people are r- really worried about the smoke. And so, a question that I've kind of had for myself is Does the trade offs of burning outpace the trade offs of not burning if we were only using? say, chemical or mechanical methods of managing these surface fuels. And I, I would say Paul Hesberg was very adamantly uh, for burning uh, when he he joined us on the podcast.
0: Well, again, it depends on the location. You're, I keep saying this. It depends on the site, depends on the location, depends on not just the ecological situation, but the sociological and political situation. Yeah. You know, we, we know that prescribed burning can confirm or, um, has great benefits ecologically, and it um, reduces the risk of high severity fire. That's why we do it. We're not doing it to eliminate fire, but to reduce the intensity and then the severity of the effects. So we know that works. But we also know that realistically, it will be impossible financially and logistically to do this at a large enough scale to make a significant difference on reducing fire risk in most Western forests. You know, if if our budgets for doing this were 10 times what they are, we still probably wouldn't be able to do it at a 10 times larger spatial scale because of air quality restrictions, because of the riskiness of of, uh, starting fires in certain landscapes, because of the intolerance of certain communities to having smoke in that area. So this is really more of a sociological problem than it is a biological problem, in my view. The other challenge with prescribed burning is, it's not always effective. Um, I, I don't know, I used, you mentioned it might be risky, I don't see it as being particularly risky if we do it under the right circumstances, but um, you know, our, our stereotypical way of viewing this is, oh, we have a nice prescribed burn, it gets rid of all those surface fuels, and then you're good for 20 or 30 years. But the real real world tells us that we end up with a mosaic of fuel reduction across any particular landscape. So it's not not 100% reliable. Mechanical means of removing fuels are reliable, 100% reliable. We can pull out the exact amount of fuels we want. We can do thinning, remove the exact number of trees we want. The problem is that costs about seven times more than doing prescribed burning, but it's a much more effective and reliable approach to reducing fuels. But it's just it's probably not realistic either financially or organizationally. So we're kind of stuck. I think, therefore, we're we're left with the option of being very strategic in how we do fuel reduction in the past. There's a lot of talk now about anchoring these treatments on recent large wildfires that we've had. So we can expand that that footprint of lower fuels in areas where it will make the most difference, where it will have the greatest impact in terms of reducing uh, fire spread into communities, or municipal watersheds, or other resources that we value. And I think that does make sense. That we, you know, we, quite often when we do prescribed burning, we might do it in places where it's easy to do. Uh, because that's you know we don't nobody wants an escape burn and we want to uh, be able to, to be effective in, in our actions but that may not be the best place on the landscape so I, I generally see us continuing to do prescribed burning in areas that are near the wildland urban interface or near areas of high value and let's do a good job with that the rest of that landscape is probably going to be on its own and we'll continue to do most of our fuel treatments with wildfires, for better or worse. I know there's a lot of buzz about, oh, we need to let more of our wildfires burn. And uh, you know, we we and that's already an option, of course. We don't do it very often because most of our, our resource managers are risk averse. Nobody wants an escaped wildfire on their watch, and that's totally understandable. So that is not a realistic way of uh, trying to reintroduce fire across these landscapes. So let's let's be very thoughtful about where we do it and optimize it where possible.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. Like the socioeconomic piece, uh, I mean, how do you, like you said, even if we could get everyone on board, it probably wouldn't be an option, but you know, we, as foresters, we're trying no longer to be um, specialists, right? We're trying to be generalists, but we also don't always have extension foresters aside, have the best people skills, the best uh, communication skills working with the public. But so, I mean, how would you say we go about getting people on board for this kind of thing, for this, and not just fire? But I really think that people need to play a, a role in the resiliency building slash restoration that we were talking about earlier there's a term called biocultural restoration that's kind of going around now that i think is really important and it just means involving people in these practices because it's really as sean pointed out sort of ignorant to deny that people are a part of the landscape and just pretend that we can go to some pre-settlement era so i'm just kind of curious looking forward how do we get people involved in and in sort of come to terms with that socioeconomic piece? Because um, I think often that becomes the, the last hurdle, aside
0: from budget, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, what you have mentioned, Patrick, is, is the key to the whole situation. And because people are complex, that means the solution is going to be complex as well and probably a little messy. But we start with the fact that people live everywhere in wildlands now. You know, there's almost nowhere you can go except wilderness areas where people don't live right on the edge of a national forest or a state forest or tribal lands or, you know, any particular area. So whatever we do out there will affect some community of people somewhere. Right. And we, we can't we can no longer deny that or, or to say that we know best and you people just have to go along with us because that in the past we might have got away with that, but we don't get away with that now. So engaging people early and often is the key as partners and as good communicators ourselves so the best approach i've seen is this concept of fire adapted communities with the concept being of you know learning how to live with fire risk not resisting it not denying it but how can we be prepared and i've always found when people are prepared for risks or, or you know, if, you're, if we're ready for an earthquake or ready for a fire, ready for a flood, that provides great relief psychologically. And then there's no longer as much stress and anxiety for people in terms of dealing with that. So we have good examples now in the state of Washington, particularly on the east side of these fire adapted communities. That takes a lot of work. You know, it's all about talking with people. It's about engaging the local fire Managers, you know, not just the, uh, the, the agencies, but the municipal firefighters as well, were often local leaders and well-respected, and find opinion leaders and organizations in the community that can be uh, neutral brokers of this information. And it may take you three, four, five years to build that, but that's the most successful um, approach that I have seen. The other thing that can help enable that is to do risk assessment mapping for different locations so that people can look at that map for their county and uh, they can see, well, where, where do I fall here and what do we need to do as a county or as a community to deal with this? And if you if you can make it a collective problem, if there's trust in the room, then you're much more likely to develop solutions that everybody can live with.
1: You know, it was interesting, I did my, my master's down in uh, Lake County, Oregon, which Sadly, this year was heavily impacted by wildfires. Um, but one thing that I noticed when I was there, especially in those extremely rural Forest Service areas, were was the number of people that lived in that community that worked for the Forest Service. It, proportionally, it was uh, you know high above the rest of the um, the populace of the town. Almost anyone that wasn't working for the Forest Service in that specific uh, district was pretty much just a, a rancher. Um, and one of the things that I saw was the ability to make decisions uh, in tandem with the, the needs of the community was really effective, uh, because they had people that were from that community that relied on that community, a part of that um, a, that decision making process. And so when I get that you know we're not always going to be able to hire every single peop- every single person from our town, especially as that starts to scale upwards, but it just shines light on the need for people to have access to and be able to and be willing to come to the table to make, uh, to, to be a part of the voice of people to say, you know, here are the things that we need. Uh, and and here, here is, you know, here's my voice in the conversation of management going forward in the face of creating this resiliency.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's critical. And, it, and this, we're finding that this applies not just to FIRE, which is kind of our hot button issue, but it applies to all aspects of resource management these days. If we look at our national forests and state forests, um, very few of them are effective at implementing large-scale or even small-scale management activities these days unless they already have good partnerships built with local organizations and community groups. Because we're starting to kind of switch this on its head. It used to be there was a lot of antagonism between big government, and the locals. And now that we are starting to get people working together in these long-term partnerships, we're getting things done. And the federal and state agencies are starting to realize that this, this works. You know, in the past, they hated going to public meetings and all this you know, chaos and people yelling at each other. But if you sit around the table, you know, have coffee together, have a beer together, you're much more likely to, to reach solutions and to find that you have a lot more in common then you do have differences. And almost everybody in the room will have a con- what I call a conservation ethic. You know, they they kind of have a similar goal in terms of they want healthy forests, they want some greenery out there, they don't want to have to escape a burning house. Everybody shares that. So it's just a matter of agreeing upon and developing the trust in those relationships to actually put things on the ground and then follow through on them. It's, it's been, I, I'd say during my career, this has been one of the great areas of progress that we've had sociologically and natural resources.
1: What do you see as the role of small forest landowners in the future when it comes to, I'm not even gonna say resilient cl- uh, forests, but uh, a resilient climate. What is the role of small forest landowners in that um, equation?
0: Well, first of all, we know that small forest landowners own a big chunk of the land out there. What is it? About 25% of forest land? At a national level or statewide? I think uh, it's about... For state of Washington?
1: thought the number I had heard was about 15%. Okay. All right. Yeah.
0: Still a big chunk. Yeah. Um, yes. So I think, you know, for better or worse, sometimes small forest landowners get left out of the conversation. And yet you know, it's a big part of the larger matrix matrix of land ownership in different places. And so I think we were talking before about with prescribed burning, how you can kind of build on these large wildfires. I think there's an opportunity here for small forest landowners to build onto bigger efforts by some of the agency lands that abut their landscape. And I, I know whenever I talk to small forest landowners, I, I say, don't just think about your 10 acres or your 100 acres. But what's around you? You know, it doesn't do much good if you do a really good job at forestry and if you reduce your fuels and if you use climate smart practices, if none of your neighbors do, because you're still going to be vulnerable there. So, again, I know I keep bringing this up. I think there's a sociological barrier there of getting people to communicate with one another and kind of think of themselves as a community. Now, I know you and you folks in in WSU Extension, do a great job of trying to create that network of landowners. It almost becomes kind of a a group think that can spread across the landscape. And I, I think we're just starting that in all honesty. I think people are more curious now than they were 10 years ago in all honesty. And they realize that things are happening with climate change. Things are happening with fire. There's more at stake than they ever thought about. And there's more problems than they've thought about before. So I think... I think we're getting there. But you know, every single educational program that we have, I think we need to stress this idea of sharing our stories. What worked on my property? I'm gonna share that with my neighbors so they can do it too. And I wanna know what they did so I can Im- maybe implement that on my property. And so this is going to be a long-term goal, but I, I can't think of any better thing. The other thing too, um, is that I think that the, the federal and state agencies need to do a better job of reaching out to small forest landowners. I mean, they've already got their hands full, right? They've got a lot of stuff to do with with small staffs typically. But I think if, if there are more people who are dedicated to doing that public outreach, that will improve the relationship. It'll also improve the flow of information. And sometimes, you know, uh, actual... Uh, you know, people support and financial support, cost-sharing programs, for example. Uh, Forest Service has done some of that over the years. Uh, so that's that's another way to do it. Uh, most um, uh, national and state forests are realizing the value of partnerships, and quite often now they have positions called partnership coordinators. Ten years ago, that didn't exist. You know, what's a partnership coordinator? Now these are important people through whom many of these different issues and discussions flow. And so I think what I'd like to see is an expansion of the creation of these partnerships. And, you know, small forest landowners, they feel like they're out there on their own sometime. They've got good support from WSU Extension and sometimes from Washington Department of Natural Resources. But you guys don't have that much time either. We need to kind of a steady partners over time Somewhere you know you can always go to ask a question and get help. So, I think we just need to strengthen those relationships over time. Yeah,
2: I really agree with everything that you said, and I, and I think there's there's something that our our team leader Andy. I'm sure, you know, Uh, it's still in me early on, which is when in all those programs, it's really important to demonstrate to small forest owners what they contribute to the landscape. Because when you are just sitting on on 20 acres, 10 acres, you know, even 100 acres, it's still, you know, it doesn't seem like that much in the stretch of millions of acres. But when you get a field day where you've got 250 landowners in one spot, that's a big chunk of acreage. And moreover, when we talk about resiliency, diversity, you know, hedging your bets and contributing to that across the landscape, I don't think anybody does that better than small forest owners, because by nature, they're being managed by thousands of different people with different management objectives. And so they contribute all this diversity to the landscape in a way that's really, I think, highly beneficial. And so it is definitely up to us to create a network of support for them so that we can they can continue that. Uh, and continue contributing that to the landscape.
0: And if you think about it, you know, we we cut all these forests 10 acres at a time. So we have to rebuild these forests 10 acres at a time, right. too. You know, it's, nobody said this would be easy, but it is doable. And I think once landowners see that it is doable, even if they're, I mean, they aren't foresters, they aren't biologists, most of them. And so they I think there's this huge kind of anxiety level they have to get through that they can do this stuff or they can hire somebody to do it for them and they won't screw it up. There's also the, the challenge that that you, you both of you know so very well and that's to get people to do any active management at all because <laughs> yeah. there's such a focus on aesthetics and habitat that, that sometimes we don't see that there may be some inter, need for intervention and a chainsaw here and there to create the conditions that will provide a sustainable forest for a long term. I'm always surprised by how many people really
2: like their evergreen holly in their forest. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I have
1: to break their heart and say, no, you should probably cut that out of there. <laughs> I do have one more question. I'm going to see if I can squeeze it into the conversation earlier because it didn't. we got to the 10,000 foot level right there at the end and it just wasn't going to fit in. But in the discussion of climate change management and specifically around carbon storage there is this debate between carbon sequestration and carbon storage and then there are the you know the graphs of like okay well carbon sequestration from the year 20 to the year 60 is at its greatest point whereas after 60 years carbon storage becomes the primary factor and we want to store as much carbon into that that period. And so, obviously, as any good fa- forest manager would say, the answer is complex and it depends. But I think that there is some conversation of, to be said of proportionality. Uh, what's the proportion of our forest that we should keep in uh, this uh, sequestration phase? And what's the proportion of the forest that we should try to keep into the, the storage phase? And whose role is it to, to keep that? So would you, would you be able to put a stab or a prediction at, at an answer to that? What would be your hypothesis?
0: Well, I don't have a magic number for you in terms of proportion, but the way I like to think about it and the way I like to explain it is that younger, fast-growing forests take up a lot of carbon. And that older forests, uh, after they have slowed down in their growth a bit, store a lot of carbon. Now, in terms of our you know, other discussions about diversification of forest management, it makes sense to me to have a range of forest ages in your portfolio, whether that's an individual landowner or whether we're talking about a million acre portion of a national forest or whatever, that if we have some variability in that landscape in terms of uptake and storage, that probably gives us the best situation in terms of long-term carbon uptake and storage. Now I should also mention that a couple things. First of all, whenever you have a fire, you're gonna lose a lot of carbon. So we may want to manage such that we can reduce those high intensity fires and those rapid loss of high amounts of uh, carbon emissions. Um, In addition, when we use forest products, we are storing carbon at uh, various lengths of time, if we put that uh, carbon in durable wood products into houses, furniture, that sort of thing, that we are substituting, in, in some cases for um, concrete and steel, which have a very high carbon footprint, about 10 times higher than wood as structural materials. So that that's a third thing that we need to think about in terms of an overall strategy for carbon storage. Uh, across the globe. Uh, there's no real easy, you know, proportionality or numbers to this that I'm aware of. I just read a, uh, a draft IPCC report on this exact topics, on this exact topic, and uh, it, it too doesn't offer an easy solution. It basically says, do a good job of forest management <laughs> and, and all these things and that will that will help you. We're always going to have wild cards out there like fires and Wind throw and flooding and so forth that give us these pulses of emissions. Yeah. But, I, but I, again, I think if we diversify uh, the landscape, that's our best bet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To me, it seems you know we we are going to be managing for timber regardless into the future. So it, it seems like we we we're going to have an abundant amount of newly growing forests. I guess I tend to lean towards we have a very small amount of old forests that, you know, contain that stored carbon. Um, and so I, I tend to lean more towards the, the process of if we have the ability to put it into something that is an older, more mature forest. Uh, and if it's not currently being managed for, uh, you know, um, timber management or whatnot, then we should do that.
0: I totally agree. And I, th- I think that's what we're seeing across the Pacific Northwest, uh, particularly on federal lands. Because we have the Northwest Forest Plan, which is basically saying that we need to continue to restore or uh, to, to create old forest and old forest structure across most of that landscape. So uh, that is pretty well locked in for a long time. And that gives us a good carbon reserve, I think. So it may you know, then give us more flexibility on some of our private lands to do some other kinds of things, including yeah timber production, because we are we are no longer producing much timber off of federal lands.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting because there was a, a historical book that I read that was looking at um, the, uh, oh, Western Montana's forest, not Lolo. Um, Bitterroot. Uh, Bitterroot, thank you, the Bitterroot National Forest. And they were looking at the history of that forest uh, management policies and their uh, annual allowable cuts. And, and what they found was that when the Forest Service would allow cuts, the economy was really thriving. And when they would bring their cut amounts down, their their economies would really suffer. And and so what you realize was that a lot of these wood economies and therefore a lot of rural communities in forest areas were really stringently tied to the amount that we allow to cut on federal grounds. And so it's, you know, I I, I worry, I don't, okay, I do worry, but I think about it. Of, of what does that future look like when we, if we're continuing to shift the proportion of our landscape to something that we don't actively want to manage for timber. And theoretically the hope is, is that we're going to set it up that way. So it will be in perpetuity, at least within our life cycles. What are we doing to those wood economies? What are we doing to those, uh, those rural, um, rural communities that, that rely on the forest service actually cutting for timber?
0: Well, I, I think that's, that's already a done deal. Sean, um, you know, we all know that, you know, many, many uh, timber mills have closed throughout the Western United States, but that's, you know, it's partly because of those restrictions, but it's also partly because of other economic factors, such as it's a lot cheaper to produce timber in the Southern U.S. than it is in the West. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's a variety of social and, and economic causes. And so we just need to say, okay, where are we now? And how can we optimize this? I I think one thing we can do with forestry is think about high quality forestry. Um, You know, have greater value for wood products. Maybe plant a little bit more cedar in the right locations than planting everything in Douglas fir on the west side. Um, So think a little bit more creatively. For whatever reason, the the world of forestry has been very slow to change. And I think that we've paid the price for that in some cases. But I, I, I do think that Things like climate change are now getting our attention, uh, throughout the entire forest sector and everybody is starting to realize that sustainable forestry is good for all of us. We just need to define what that means for each of these different types of landowners. Um,
1: when you talk about migration of trees, cause migration is, is a, it's a real thing, you know, okay. They're not forest trees, ants that get up and walk away, um, but they do migrate and they've and what I would hypothesize is that that migration occurred through natural disturbance processes. So that, that those systems are changing with the climate and, and the, the pathways, the physical pathways for trees to migrate themselves through seed dispersal are no longer as strong as they used to be. To me, that seems like there's this natural call for assisted migration through that statement in and of itself.
0: I, I agree completely. Yeah, again, we're not dealing with natural forest systems anymore. We're dealing with a, a very human affected and influenced system. So it's not, real, it's not realistic to let's just na- let nature take its course. In the case of climate change, um, natural migration of species may not be able to keep up with the change yeah. in environment that's going to occur because of the rapid increase in temperature so that's that's not a very smart thing to do so yeah. if, you know we need to thoughtfully um, intervene and you know take actions where we think they're appropriate and the risks are low enough to be to be have a successful outcome
1: do you think we're going to see juniper extend its uh, distribution into eastern washington in a strong sense not looking at you know yeah. like juniper dunes
0: yeah no that absolutely seems like a, a, a possible occurrence. Yes. Mm. Unfortunately, we'll probably also see some extension of some of the non-native species (laughs) that go with those arid and semi-arid systems as well.
1: Well, Dave, I think we are sitting at about an hour and a half on this presentation, which is usually where we like to call it. And this has been an excellent conversation, an excellent discussion. Um, And so I guess from, from myself and from all the landowners that are listening to this and people that are listening to this, uh, thank you very much for coming out today. We, we appreciate you um, taking the time. Thanks, Dave.
0: Well, you're very welcome. I certainly enjoyed our conversation and we, we covered a lot of ground. And let's do it again sometime.